there's that there's a story of when you're born wealthy, you just lucked out. And you don't have the skills to replicate. So sometimes people are arrogant thinking they can just, like Huntington Harvard, he was just somehow going to magically have success. He was going to double his fortune. And instead, he right. dies nearly penniless. Can we talk about that? Because the penniless story seems to repeat quite often. And um, I've studied a lot of different families for a lot of research that I was doing. And you mentioned it now. Why do they and how do they end up penniless? You would think that if you are born the richest boy, the richest girl that you mentioned, or one of the top five, how is it even possible to end up penniless? <laughs> it's extremely easy. It's extremely easy when it comes to wealthy That's... families. Just because someone inherited $30 million, it doesn't stay. When people look at the wealthy, they usually see them right. as completely distant. They become like this mm -hmm. mythical feature because you're so obsessed with the money and either envy, greed, or whatever issues bubble up from there. And when I started hearing their stories, the core thing about being an heir or heiress means someone died in your life. And usually the person who you're inheriting your wealth from, that's the person you right. need most to know how to deal with it. Welcome to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. How to make it, save it, keep it. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question. What it means to live a rich life beyond money. My guests share their practices, principles, and evergreen wisdom. I'm your host, Bogumil Baranowski, author, TEDx speaker, investor, and a founding partner of Seacard Associates, a boutique investment firm founded in New York City. Join me on this quest to unearth the wisdom of the ages. Guest today is Nikki Woodard. Nikki has an extensive experience in media, a degree in radio, television, film, and a passion for history. For four years, she worked on multiple History Channel documentaries, and she was a research consultant for USA's Mr. Robot. In her history podcast, as the money burns, Nikki reconstructs the Great Depression through the lives of actual heirs and heiresses. She brings back to life the tales of the rich living through the Great Depression. She sets the stage by telling us about the summer before the 1929 crash. We learn about a number of young heirs and heiresses and the lives they live. There is so much that changed at the time. The newspapers started to follow the stories of the wealthy, and they were losing their anonymity. Taxation was on the rise, so was fraud, Ponzi schemes, and more. We hear about bank runs, and how no matter how rich one is, it's not hard, and maybe extremely easy, to lose it all. The stories we hear are almost a hundred years old, but as relevant then as they are today. Only this week, I took a call from someone who's been reading my articles and books, his family tale is set between two continents and resembles so many of the stories we'll hear today talking with Nikki. Someone once reminded me that it's not easy, but it's cheaper to learn from the mistakes of others. Let's go back to the Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression era with my guest, Nikki Woodard. We are approaching a major milestone from the podcast, and I'll tell you more once we get there. The podcast has been downloaded in 95 countries around the world, which is remarkable and hard to believe. So a big thank you to all of you listening around the world. And many of you have reached out, emailed me and got in touch. So if you're still thinking about it, send me a quick note. I'm curious to hear about where you are, what your story is, what you're enjoying about the podcast. What I love the most is that I can tell 
that the majority of the listeners are listening to the end of the episodes. That makes me really happy. I also wanted to share with you that my book, Crisis Investing, 100 Essays, reached a top one, two, three position in some major categories in Amazon's new releases in finance, investing, stock investing, and portfolio management in the last few days. So thank you for that. The book is available on Amazon and the Kindle version is still selling for only 99 cents. So the more people can read it, the happier I'll be. If you like it and enjoy it, please write me a quick review. The early reviews matter, so I appreciate it. Thank you and let's get going with the show. Hello, Nikki. Nice to have you on the show. Hi, Bogabel. It's great to meet you. You have a wonderful podcast and it's called Ask the Money Burns. And you introduce your audience to a lot of characters, interesting people from the Great Depression era. It feels like it was so long ago, but the stories are very relevant today. And you mentioned in your podcast, and I agree with that, that the history rhymes. And you even make some references to more recent events. So I want to get started right away. And I'm really curious about your story, your career, your interest in launching a great podcast focused on a very particular point in time. Tell me more how the whole thing came about. I have always been interested in history. Since third grade, when I heard the story of Pocahontas and found out it was actually real, I was like, oh my God. And then in fourth grade, my mom went to London and came back with the book of kings and queens. And then that's all of a sudden goes, wait, those stories and fairy tales are real? You're just starting to be the age where you go, Disney princesses, oh, those aren't real. No, they're actually are real ones. And some of them have worse stories and some of them have, they really have better stories because Disney ends always in the happy note. And so I just, ever since then, I've just, I've always liked story. I always liked entertainment and then history, but very particular kinds of history. I, in high school, I did this documentary competition called History Fair. It's like science fair and they have different areas, but they had a media competition, which my brother, who was just a little older than me in age, started and my dad had a video studio since high school and even before then in junior high I would do performances I've been doing these history documentaries when I went to college I have a degree in radio television film which I used to joke that I never used radio but now I do for podcasting <laughs> I have a dual degree I have a BA in history and a BS which is somewhat very true for radio television film from the University of Texas Austin and then I went off and got a master's degree. I came out and worked in Hollywood for a year, went off and got a master's degree at the University of Chicago, master's in Middle Eastern studies. And then I came back. I worked for the History Channel for about four years. Right. I know how to tell it. I know how to dig up history. I've been good at this since high school. My junior year, we did a project on mental illness and mental asylum and had to track down the term bedlam comes from St. Mary's of Bethlehem. And we had to find uh -huh. the hospital and interview the uh -huh. archivist for this project. So I've wow. always done that. I came out to Hollywood to do media and history, and I need to just focus on that. So I started looking for stories, and I stumbled across a New Yorker article discussing the events of the summer of 1929 in Newport, Rhode wow. Island, which when mm -hmm. I was in also in high school, I did a summer program at Brown University. And this was in the middle of a lot of family problems. So it was a way to just get away for summer and fell in love. And that relationship imploded, but led to my later attraction to the man who became my husband, which was not a good relationship in ways that that's why I relate to the stories that I'm telling. And mm -hmm. so when I was rebuilding my life, I was like, oh, and I stumble across who's in Newport, Rhode Island at this time. Oh, it's Barbara Hutt and Doris Duke. I've known about them 
since I was in high school. So I started fleshing out the stories and a lot of the things that were happening in these people's lives were parallel to what happened in my life. The summer of 1929, they are the same age I was at Brown University. And I went to Newport, Rhode Island for two days in the, as a part of that program. So it's just like, oh, how you fall in love. And then the disasters that became their life. Wow. And I'll discuss some of the other stuff a little bit later, but it, there's deaths in the family. There's we In my life, we had a moment where we had money and a moment when we didn't. So I don't mm -hmm. see money as universal, a right. constant of positive. I see, I know the negative sides. I know the good sides, never to the level of these people. And I've spent way more of my life broke. So it's funny that I'm talking constantly about wealthy people. Let me ask you, because you touched on something interesting. And before you introduce some of the characters and the stories, can you talk about your own childhood and upbringing? It comes across in the podcast now and then when you mention your own story and you started talking about it. Can you talk about how you think that time in your life influenced your relationship with money and maybe your interest in this particular time in history, the Great Depression and how it affected certain characters that you feature in the show? I'll say first as the precursor is that when people look at the wealthy, they usually see right. them as completely distant. They become like this mm -hmm. mythical feature because you're so obsessed with the money and either envy, greed, or whatever issues bubble up from there. And when I started mm -hmm. hearing their stories, the core thing about being an heir or heiress means someone died in your life. And usually the person, and because that's who you're inheriting your wealth from, that's the person you right. need most to know how to deal with it. My life story and why this rings true and why there's not the same level of envy towards them and empathy for their circumstances outside mm -hmm. of money and understanding how money helped a situation and also how it made it worse. I am the youngest of four children. The brother mm -hmm. closest to me in age is, was three years older. He had childhood cancer. So first, my, when I'm four and six years old, my brother, I have these weird memories of my brother being sick. It, then he got better and he lived 13 years. Our parents get divorced. It was acrimonial, not the worst of divorces, but enough. There's a lot of turmoil and a lot of anger in the family and just resituating the dynamics. My brother becomes a delinquent, like seriously, spent time in prison. Cancer comes back. When I went away to Brown University, my brother, every other couple of weeks, my brother was going to die. And it just, I'm 17 years old. How do you cope with this? Mm -hmm. And that had a nice little love that came there that fell apart as my brother died my senior year of high school. So that death is the biggest thing in my life. The second biggest thing from growing up is my parents' divorce and the restructuring of the family. And in the middle of my parents' divorce, my dad also got audited by the IRS and we lost our home. So there's a lot of things stacking up and there's other things in my life that I've just had a chaotic life. And so my dad was in real estate and in Houston, the time where I grew up, everybody was wealthy for a a point when my dad was also starting, like my dad's best time was right before my parents split up. By eighth grade, my dad lost his money and the next few years were just struggling to get by and my parents aren't together. Also in that time, all these wealthy people my dad knew also lost their money, but they lost their money. My dad wasn't involved, but he knew all the people around him to the savings and loans scandal. A lot of people don't know it, but I understand it quite well. It's always referenced as savings and loans and what happened and right. how the money was shuffled around and then things will come up later in life and my dad and I will discuss it again. So this awareness of money, how it's not, it's not the sure fire safety that people think it is. Then there was a lot of complications between my brother and my dad over money. All of those dynamics and then having siblings that are half and all this stuff, like this is all in these people's histories. 
So when you start to explain these dynamics, I've already lived it. So when I see it and other people, like when they describe it, they don't understand it. I'm trying to, maybe I'm getting it slightly wrong, but I'm trying to make it where it's understandable. One of the main characters is Doris Duke, how she's attached to her older half-brother, but how that's a complication with her mother. Right. When everybody talks about wealth, they just think that you're getting money. And when you look at how people lose money, it's a lot about your personal demons and how one bad choice can lead to another that then leads to the loss. I like how you mentioned in one of your episodes that you talk about the wealthy and you talk about the wealth, but the goal is not to glorify or vilify the wealth in your podcast. You take on a role of an observer without the judgment. And I think you just present it, your personal experience and why you look at it that way. You see it as a human experience of people that go through their ups and downs and stories. And the wealth is just one of the elements of the life they've had. It's nice to inherit money where you don't have to worry about losing your house. But after like certain survival moments, you want the mm -hmm. relationship with your parents or with your siblings or with whoever you want as a life partner. You don't right. want to be their target or something negative. When you have a certain amount of money, it absorbs when you have just even the little life hiccups. The flip side is when you have so much money, then people are coming after you and you become a whole other higher level of target. The big theme in your podcast is that moment when a lot of those characters lose their anonymity. The media gets very interested in their lives. Their real names are published. Their photographs are published. And the media also tracks how much money they have and all the details about their life. It's an interesting point in time because nowadays we think it's always been like that. And it looks like it wasn't always the case. And in the 1920s, 1930s, those characters became much more visible and because of that, much more vulnerable. I think that's one of the points that you make in your podcast that they become a target. The concept of celebrity that we know, the term celebrity, I think, was was coined in like 1937. These are the first media celebrities. So they're going to make every mistake with the advent of more technology, I would say, the ability to do photographs and then put them in newspapers and how a picture is worth a thousand words, even when you're going through the newspaper articles, because I do a lot of newspaper research, you start to see the prevalence of photographs showing up. Right. And, and I've done some stuff in the 1890s where you're like lucky if you occasionally have a sketch of something. So this new thing, but you're also in the Great Depression. So people are, people are more attracted to the story of this extreme wealth. And the funny part is they actually are getting some of the facts wrong. Like, Sometimes they <laughs> overestimate someone's wealth. Sometimes they underestimate people's wealth. Um, I think we still do that. I think we still do that. Well, because you, you don't know if you don't, <laughs> if you can't see the balance sheet, you don't know. And then as I always try to point out is don't trust the balance sheet because I did do a couple of years in accounting as an assistant, but I already knew, I knew I already knew the money games, but then just seeing how it looks like when you deal with entries, there's a lot that can be deceptive. Right. And the only time you can really figure out the deception is the long time results. Like I try to tell people, I was like, do not pay attention to what someone says. Look at the facts. Well, and also there's the idea of looking rich and being rich. Some people focus on looking rich, may not necessarily be able to back it up. And then the other ones may not look rich. They have much more than you think. I think that's been a theme over centuries. And yeah. these days, it's probably harder to maintain your anonymity. I was going to ask you about some of the characters. So somebody who's new to this time or hasn't thought about the 1920s, 1930s, 
what's the handful of characters that we should know from that era to give us a flavor of who were these people? What were they up to? How did they inherit the money? What happened to them? I decided to focus primarily on a group of five heirs and heiresses because they're all about mm -hmm. scene 18. So they're pre-adulthood and they're going to go through their early parts of adulthood and their first marriages during the Great Depression, which I always feel like it's your high school-esque age college that is the most defining point of your life. The patterns that you get, you will repeat throughout your life or try to compensate. So these and these five people are also like conjunct, like they're all alternatives of each other. You have the richest girl in the world is Doris Duke and the richest boy. How, this is how they're referred in the newspapers is Huntington Hartford. They're both going mm -hmm. to inherit about 100 million, which is I'm going to because so many of the inflation is changing so much, but basically a billion dollars. And right. inheritance at the time doesn't come until you're 21. From 18 to 21, even if they're out of high school and or in or not in or out of college, they don't have access to their fortune. So we have Doris Duke, who's the heir to the Duke fortune. They founded Duke University. The primary money came from tobacco. They were poor farmers when the Civil War happened. And then after the Civil War, they had one of the few surviving tobacco crops. And then he turns this into one of the major monopolies on tobacco. And it's Lucky Strike is one of the original companies. So her father dies at when she is about 11. And it is implied her mother killed the father to get the fortune. And she wanted to give the fortune to her half, her oldest son, who was not a duke from her first marriage, and was upset that two weeks after Buck Duke died, she found out he left the bulk of not, over 90% of his fortune to his daughter, Doris Duke, at a time when mm -hmm. women did not inherit that level of money. So there's a constant conflict between Doris and her mother. And she's the one, one of the, she, most people in the story, they lose their fathers. Barbara Hutton, the next heiress, she's born, her and Doris Duke are only two weeks apart in age. Barbara Hutton is the heir of the Woolworth fortune. Her grandfather is Frank Woolworth. He had three daughters. Her mother died when she was like five years old. Barbara has this need for a maternal figure. Her father is Franklin Hutton, brother of E.F. Hutton. Together, they start the brokerage firm. Huge success. Her father, Barbara's father, was able to double her fortune that she inherited. And she didn't know how wealthy, she knew she was in the wealthy set, but she didn't realize she was more than twice as wealthy of any, especially any female in their group, except for Doris Duke. And they were friends at a time, and then later they become frenemies. So Barbara, but Barbara Hutton also has this fairy tale idea of love and romance. She will be married and divorced seven times. She has one of the worst romantic histories. And it's a love triangle that she's involved as the core frame of the story is her relationship with her first marriage. In the end, Barbara dies almost penniless. Like the end of her life is really sad. We have Huntington Hartford, which I mentioned is the richest boy. His family is from the AP grocery store fortune, one of the first major supermarkets. He's very idealistic. He's a silver spoon baby and his mother spoils him rotten. He doesn't understand tenacity. He doesn't have, he'll have an idea. And Frank Lloyd Wright, a famous architect said, Huntington Hartford's the guy who has an idea, pinches it in the fanny and runs away. Mm -hmm. So he always, he has enough money. He can start any project, but he doesn't have the ability and the endurance to see it through the end. John Jacob Astor is born the same year as Barbara and Doris. John Jacob Astor the sixth, I refer to him as Jakey because so many he's the sixth. He actually survives the Titanic in his right. mother's womb. The Titanic sinks in April 1912, and he's born in August. But he's known as the Titanic baby for the rest of his life. His father, 
John Jacob Astor IV is the richest man to die on the Titanic. He was coming back from his honeymoon, his second marriage to a much younger lady. Today, we know it's more possible, but he was in his 40s and he married a girl who was 19, 18, 19. And that was a, considered a huge scandal. He's also, John Jacob Astor IV is the son of Caroline Astor, the Gilded Age Society Queen. So John Jacob Astor VI is the son of Caroline Astor, who's a side character in the HBO Gilded Age story, which is why more people are starting to know who she is. But she is a big figure of the Gilded Age and the rules of etiquette of wealthy society that everyone's following when the Great Depression changes some of those rules. Like they become superfluous on how you show your wealth or how you behave in certain behaviors. But everyone's trying to follow Caroline Astor's rules of etiquette, essentially. So John Jacob Astor, the six, his father dying on the Titanic, they hadn't changed the will. So he inherits $3 million when his oldest brother inherits the bulk of the fortune, which was, I'm blanking at the moment, but it was over like a $1.4 to $2 billion today. And right. Jakey's getting basically $40 million compared to it. But everybody mm. thinks he inherited the amount of his oldest brother. And they have a sister who's very interesting too, but she, she got a smaller amount, but that was good for girls their age. And then he has a cousin, Louise Astor Van Allen, who's a great granddaughter of mine Astor. And Louise Astor Van Allen, the Van Allen family is very big in Newport. Once again, her, mm -hmm. her mother is one of the last society queens. And they're just like the tip, they are the idealistic family. She did lose her father. She is an heiress, but she has two brothers. They all have a good relationship. She actually inherits equally to her brothers, which was unheard of at the time. She inherits only like $5 million less, but that's because she pissed off her uncle, who was a Vanderbilt, <laughs> because of the issues that come up with her marriage. And one of those marriages is a love triangle with Barbara Hutton. And then we have, I have other characters. So I have Vanderbilts that show up. Why I like these stories is I get those elements pulled back in with these people because they're international. They get to travel around. They're dealing with royalty. I have plenty of stories of Queen Elizabeth II's grandmother and the Prince of Wales who abdicated that led to her becoming the queen and how like that Prince of Wales, his mom actually wanted him to marry Barbara Hutton to get him away from all these crazy American divorcees he seems to be interested in. <laughs> that's the one that ended up penniless. Yeah. So, th And that's the thing is also like I study before, before I got into the wealthy, my academic interest was dynasties. So uh -huh. in a, imperial worldwide dynasties, because you talk about from 1400 to 1900, because a lot of things collapse with the World War I. So I'm interested, right. like I was interested, a lot of things are the same. You might change the name for a sultan, a king, an emperor. There's the aristocrat, there's the noble class, there's the poor, the proliferation of literature and culture, which is what I'm more interested in than wars. There's a kind of universality of things with variations, but you will have the, the king's son trying to kill him off or the brothers fighting with each other. That happens everywhere you go around the world. The way you build an empire is you have this mythical first founder that nobody really knows. So that's King Arthur in British mm. history. It's, I want to say Orhan in Turkish history. I have I used to study Ottoman hip Empire a lot. And then two or three other generations. And then you finally have the person who conquers a major city. Mehmet II, first the Sultan of Turkey, conquers Constantinople. That changes all the dynamics of Europe. You have Charlemagne in France. And you have, you have this drastic. So you have the builder, and then the next person either builds the empire or just sustains it. Sometimes it dips mm -hmm. down. Then the third generation will maybe invigorate the empire. They'll expand it again, like Suleiman the Magnificent. So he expands the empire and the laws. He's the one everyone always talks about. Then after that, 
everything just falls apart. And you can see the same thing with business corporations and family and wealthy dynasties. You see it with the Vanderbilts, the Astor. Sometimes they're lucky if they have more than one generation that builds wealth, but it always ends up in the dynasty. Like same thing, we, we talk about the British monarchy being a thousand years old, but they're not the same blood relatives. You have 12 different dynasties, completely different, switching back and forth. So mm-hmm. you see those patterns. And so when you're studying the wealthy, you're like, oh, yeah. So if you see those parallels between the empires or emperors, the kings, and then the wealthy and the corporations and the businesses, and some of the characters that you mentioned in the 1920s and 1930s, and some of the recent ones, the, mm-hmm. the history rhymes. Do you have any advice or have you noticed something, some practices or some lessons that actually worked and allowed those families to continue and get along? It looks like it would be helpful if they didn't want to kill each other to start with. When you become so bent on building a a fortune, but you don't take care of your family, you disconnect. Mm. So you can't, and the same thing with royalty. If your children are being raised by nannies and they're never interacting with you, you're not a person. Now, sometimes like Cornelius Vanderbilt, he's extremely brilliant in business, but he's not a personable man. Buck Duke actually was very affectionate towards his family, Doris Duke's father, and very supportive of her, but he could be just ruthless in business. Same story as with Jay Gould, who is the railroad baron of the Gilded Age. Mm -hmm. And then also, it's just, it's also sibling rivalries is if you have a favored child versus an unfavored, how that magnifies over time. When you're born wealthy is you're born on third base and you think you hit a triple, but you just lucked out. And you don't have the skills to replicate. So sometimes people are arrogant thinking they can just, like Huntington Harvard, he was just somehow going to magically have success. He was going to he was going to double his fortune. And instead, he right. dies nearly penniless. Can we talk about that? Because the penniless story seems to repeat quite often. And I'm, I've studied a lot of different families for a lot of research that I was doing. And you mentioned it now. Why do they and how do they end up penniless? You would think that if you are born to be the richest boy, the richest girl that you mentioned, or one of the top five that you mentioned earlier. How is it even possible to end up penniless? <laughs> it's extremely easy. It's extremely easy when it comes to wealthy That's... families. Just because someone inherited $30 million, it doesn't stay. If you have right. multiple kids, that's divided between multiple kids. So that $30 million may only be $2 million or $5 million per person, but they're still mm-hmm. trying to live like they came from the $30 million lifestyle. Sometimes they trust the wrong people who mismanage their funds. That happened to Barbara Hutton. She was a heavy spender and she mismanaged her funds. So a couple of things that you mentioned, I'd like to come back to the Ponzi schemes and fraud. But before Mm -hmm. that, I'm curious about the summer of 29 before the market crash. So just to give the audience a bit of background, the market crashed in the fall of 1929, but the Dow Jones, the major index, continued to fall all the way until 1932 and lost 92% of its value, 92% of the value of the largest US companies at the time. So even if you were the richest person, there was really nowhere to hide. Everybody felt it. Can you talk about that experience, first of all, the summer? Did people know that it was coming? And second, the following few years, even if you were the richest person in the country, you felt it. Because it impacted everything. So in worldwide, it impacted people. Right. Black Thursday is October 24th, 1929. That's one of the big precursors to the crash. And it's the beginning of the panic. At 11 a.m., a panic set in with people wanting to sell instead of buy. At 1130, it becomes frantic. By 12 o'clock, bankers meet at J.P. Morgan's office. And at 1230, they step in and start buying stocks. So Mm -hmm. prices went up and everything became positive. And it only took 
after 7 p.m. is when the market closed in. It was eight minutes and 30 seconds, and the market was only off by 12 points. So they avoided a crash. Monday mm-hmm. was a little bit, I don't know all the specifics, but Tuesday, October 29th now is Black Tuesday. There were more mm-hmm. trades than, more trades occurred than on Thursday and more losses than that what happened on Monday. They had too many selling with no buyers. It took the ticker two and a half hours after close to catch up with all the recordings. Now, we've had dips in the stock market before and what everybody assumed was this was only going to be for like a month or two and then we would recover. Right. They didn't realize how much happened. And a lot of it is because everything was so inflated. Credit meant that people were overbuying, overvaluing things. The stock market was kind of new where everyone could participate in. So more people were getting into it than were capable of understanding it. And then when it crashed, everybody just thought, oh, it's two months and then we'll recover. Not acknowledging that the last 10 years had been a high. So Mm -hmm. now the market's going to reset and go low. And they go way lower than they ever want. And one of the bigger factors of what's, it's not just the stock market crash. It ends up being the bank runs and bank failures that's, that then trigger the next two to three years. It's 1933 right. when Franklin Roosevelt passes the act that then stops the bank failures. Hmm. But then everybody's afraid. They go to the bank like we just saw with Silicon Valley, pull out their money. And in doing that, the bank then can't come up with the money fast enough and it starts to collapse. And so a whole right. nother cycle and trigger happens. I just covered for the 1930s. So two years ago, I covered bank runs and the start of the bank runs, which happened that summer in the 30s, mid-1930. Banks were starting to fail, but they were in the Midwest. They were small farmers' banks. So everyone's like, oh, okay, whatever. They weren't that solvent. By the fall, it started moving to larger banks. Banks failed in Lisbon and Cuba and Tennessee in the U.S., Tennessee was a big one. And what happened was Caldwell and Company, which was the backer, they got overextended and they collapsed, which then caused more banks collapse. And come to find out that's once again, like a Ponzi scheme, a mismanagement of funds and some other things that are happening that then they think it's a one-time thing, but this stuff keeps going. And as a domino effect, because sometimes like someone who's a legitimate in business, but if you've invested in the wrong business and you lose that much money, it, and then- You're in it, trouble. And then also, we also changed a lot of the laws after what happened in the 1930s. We're going to talk in the future, you want to talk about Ivan Kruger. Let's talk about him. Who was he? And he was quite a figure at the time. And you have a whole episode about him. Who was he? Why was he important? What did he do? And yeah, everything else that people should know. Ivan Kruger is a Swedish industrialist known as the Match King. And that's mm-hmm. because he controlled the monopoly worldwide on matchstick production. I'm going to blank on the numbers, but I think anywhere from 60 to 90%, given whichever period. So his he had started in a concrete business. His dad had a matchmaking company. He When his dad retires or dies, he takes over the business. And then he really, the concrete business wasn't so great. Enough to make money, but not, but when he took over the match, he just, he just exploded. He just became so, so large. Like I said, he ended up control, like buying around the world, controlling things. When World War One, when all these countries needed loans, they were actually borrowing money from him. And and he had, and it, it's hard to get his specifics. When I was trying to look at the time I was discussing him, there's so much with him I can't understand. I'm not well versed enough in economics to understand when they talk about debentures or something like that. I don't understand what it is, and as like, and I'm talking about something else that he owns, like. He was 400. very creative. I think yeah. he was very creative of yeah, making up all kinds of things. He was very creative in how he issued stocks and he would issue yes. 
He would overissue stocks, overvalue them. It's also the shell game where money's always getting moved around. And mm-hmm. people get confused when the money's moved around. And then when you stop moving it, that's when you realize like it's all gone. So he right. had 450 corporations. When his collapses, it affects like 650,000 people in all these mm-hmm. countries. And they find out like he's 450 million in debt. So such an astronomical amount, they can't even fathom what went wrong. The big theme is that each crisis reveals the frauds. The right. frauds have a hard time still hiding somewhere when the crisis comes. And I'm thinking of Madoff in the recent history and obviously the Match King back in the day when the markets collapse and the economy collapses, it reveals which businesses were really a fraud, as yeah. was his to a large extent. The one interesting theme in your podcast is that moment of realization that the recovery is not coming. And I've studied the lives of many investors that lived through the Great Depression and then continued their careers after. And they were actually successful, but they always looked and thought that the Great Depression is coming. And all the crises that we had since the Great Depression, and we can talk more about it, why? The recovery happened eventually, relatively quickly in many cases. Even the COVID pandemic market sell-off went away very quickly. Almost people forgot that it happened. But the Great Depression was very different. And it has a lot to do with the fact that the dollar was gold and gold was dollar. So the liquidity went away. But people were waiting for the recovery to happen and it wasn't happening. The other interesting theme that I found in your podcast is taxation. So millions (laughs) are gone. There's less money to go around. There are businesses disappearing, as you mentioned, very different Uh than these days, not really liquidated, but just gone. And uh, the taxes go up and some people are not happy about it. That's what you mentioned in one of your episodes. Some people are... My my family history with the IRS is I cannot ignore a story about the IRS and having lost Uh a house to the IRS. I know how terrifying it really can be. So the guy who owns White Marsh Hall is E.T. Stotesbury. Mm -hmm. He hosts a party in August 1929. He gets a message from his business manager. He's worth about $90 million. I can't remember what year he dies. It's 35 or 36. He dies nearly penniless. He leaves his widow and his daughters with $4 million. So his wife only gets like a fraction of that is not even that's barely able to sustain one month of their lifestyle. That's the Mm -hmm. owners of White Marsh Hall. This is the future in-laws of Doris Duke. In fact, because he lost money, E.T. Stotesbury tells his stepson, you need to marry rich because you're too spoiled. White Marsh Hall was built right before World War I. It has a soda fountain, a bowling alley, you know, all the things you hear, like when you hear about Aaron Spelling's house or these certain Santa Barbara estates, like the new house. Oh, they have their own bowling alley. They have the soda fountain. This is one of the first houses where this is at. Jimmy Cromwell is the future husband of Doris Duke. He was also a lover of Quibina Wright during World War I. So she, when she was dating him, she was having her opera career and World War I's going on. And she meets him as a naval officer in France. She was like, he is so spoiled. He said... I'd ring a button and the servant would bring me up ice cream. He would talk about how great this White Marsh Hall is. And no one knows that they lost, he lost, Stotesbury lost money in the crash and was not able to recover. And then what happens is we, our IRS history is very weird. Like we didn't really start any kind of income tax until the Civil War. And then Mm -hmm. it would be off and on for a few years just because it was like, right, Civil War and Reconstruction, a way to rebuild the country. And then it went away. By the 30s, they then institute a new personal income tax that becomes permanent. 
And E.T. Stotesbury is extremely angry with how much he has to pay in taxes. They put in the newspaper, he's the highest tax-paying citizen of Philadelphia. So he's angry. They're taking my money. Well, I'm just going to die penniless. I'm just going to spend all the money before I die. And he does a good job. He just doesn't tell anybody there's no money left because they're still living a high lifestyle. The next couple of years is going to be hiding the fact that what they're doing when they're selling off possessions, it's covering debts or covering their lifestyle, not realizing it's gone. But they have all sorts of weird excuses. So like by the time they do have to get rid of White Marsh Hall, it is not in the glory days. A lot of the paintings and furnishings are gone. So it is in some ways an American Versailles story without the pillaging of a revolution. So not everybody ended up penniless in that era. As far as I remember, Doris Duck, she did quite okay and then continued to be a very wealthy person all the way for the next 50 years or so. I don't remember exactly when she passed away. She dies, she and, dies in the early 90s. Early so 90s. she did lose, she lost about 20 or 30% of her fortune with the crash, mm-hmm. but she was invested in long-term, like her dad set up some intricate trust. She's one of the ones, she's one of the only ones that she gets a certain amount at 21, a certain amount at 25, and a certain amount in her later 30s. So it staggers mm-hmm. her ability to deal with it. They were very conservatively invested. So mm-hmm. she let it have enough time. She was still wealthier than everybody else, even though she lost 20, 30% of her wealth. So instead of 100 million, she was worth 70 million, which is still, I forget which year, but one year, like there are only 30 millionaires by the income tax form in America. Mm-hmm. Barbara Hutton and Doris Duke would be one of those two people, two of those people on that list. But she is, she's the richest girl, like Marjorie Merriweather Post, which is the aunt of Barbara Hutton, married to E.F. Hutton for a time period, who's covered a lot in the story. She was the richest, one of the richest people in the world. So she was able to handle the business and build. Doris Duke just stayed well with her investments. She was very frugal with things. She, right. and she was raised with paranoia that people only wanted her money. I was going to ask you about inheritance. And you mentioned briefly how Doris Duke was receiving money at different points in time. Mm-hmm. And it's a theme that I've noticed that it may give younger people a chance to learn as they go, instead of being overwhelmed with all of it at the same time. Are there any lessons? Are there any stories that you can share of how the inheritance was received and maybe helped the heir, the heiresses keep it longer or be more successful or learn the tricks before they get overwhelmed? I think it's more, it's one of those times where you have to look at what went wrong to Mm -hmm. see Warren Buffett, some other people have said, it's very important who you marry as a spouse. You need to have that partner who's responsible. When you Mm -hmm. marry someone who's into fame Mm -hmm. or into extreme luxury, especially if they don't come from luxury, sometimes when they come from luxury, they don't understand the value of the dollar and they just, they know how to spend, but they don't know the balance sheet. And then other people who don't come from money, they're overcompensating and they're overspending. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing. And the same thing is they think, oh, money's always coming in. It's never going to go away. The, so the big thing, the big, the hardest part is it's having a good emotional baseline, good trusting relationships with people who are actually trusting. It's giving people time for trust where people don't get all the money at once. So they have time to learn and make mistakes. Because that's the one thing is if you inherit, inherit $5,000 and then you go buy a car, you don't have any money left. Have you read the Brewster's Millions? I, I've seen the movie. I haven't watched. I haven't read the book. You can look it up. It was written about that time. And it's about somebody that receives one inheritance and then a second one. 
And there is a condition that he has to lose the first one to mm, receive to the second bigger. one, the much bigger one. And it's an argument between an uncle and a grandfather, some relatives. That's why it's set up in such a strange way. But the process of losing the first one within one year, I think, teaches him quite a bit about what it takes to keep it. Right. He's almost not interested in the larger one when it comes. And I think the lesson and the theme is that whether it's a lottery winner or somebody has a big inheritance or sells a business, you we assume that another opportunity like this will follow right after that. So we play and make mistakes with the first one because something bigger is coming. And I think we learn time after time that if nothing else is coming, this inheritance or this lottery winning is the only thing coming and maybe we should treat it with a lot more care and caution. That's my lesson from yeah. Brewster's well, Millions. <laughs> see, I know Brewster's Millions because it was turned into a movie starring Richard Pryor. I know, so, but the book, the book, the is, book much, is the book is more, much more in the book. Yeah. Yes. It's, well, it's a book. <laughs> it's sad when you see people lose money and they've tried to do good. That's Huntington Hartford. Like he's trying to build an art museum in New York. It's one right. of the worst architectural buildings, but not my opinion. Other people said because like there's no light. Like it's just a weird structure. He starts a magazine that ends up later becoming successful, but he doesn't get past the hump. He tries to, he actually developed the casino that was used in the James Bond film. And I'm blanking on which one it was, one of the casinos in the Bahamas. He's trying to develop in like the 60s and it gets into a, a financial crisis. And the minute it becomes no longer the novel idea, he changes ideas. So that's part of the thing is it's always like this balance is when do you buckle down and keep going? And when mm -hmm. do you realize you have a loss and cut and run? And right. the problem with the fortune is whichever the choice was, it ended up being the wrong one for that decision. But there's a pattern there that just keeps every time he makes the same mistake, it just magnifies later and later. And then mm -hmm. in the end, like the thing is he put a lot of money in these projects that didn't pan out. And then that's not rebuilding the fortune. So then no. it's gone. There's not much to inherit when he dies. And he's one of the last ones to die in the story. Nikki, we covered so much, so many interesting stories and aspects of the Great Depression. I think people will be more intrigued to discover more. I always like to ask my guests about the definition of success, if you don't mind sharing. I'm curious about yeah. your own definition of success. And is it a destination? Is it a journey? Tell me more. I think a lot of it is the journey. You hope for a destination. Once you get to the destination, you'll get like, bored or itchy. You want the end destination to be like your final days of life. Right now, for me, right now, I want to be able, I've always been creative. That's like I said, that's my drug. So I just, I want to be able to do what I want to do with the freedom and have options. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to create more podcasts with this story and with some others because I have so, obviously, I have so much history jammed into this head that I've collected. And finally, with podcasting, <laughs> I don't have to like, I don't have to come up with someone to pay $8 million for a pilot episode or $60 million to make a thing. I can tell a story with my voice, get it down so it's in a story form, and then transfer it to a story later. Just to be able to do something productive, do that something that entertains people, informs them at the same time. The reason I like history is there's a truth to it. Because when you listen to fiction, you're like, oh, yeah, like the best fiction is actually truthful. And so you right. want, you, you just want to understand yourself better and mm -hmm. you want to understand other people better. And so to me, success is just being able to do that without stress of the next time the tire blows out. And then, okay. and, you, and then, you know, you have the fantasy sometimes, like, oh, if I became really successful, then it'd be worth this much. And then you go, crap, <laughs> I know what happens when you have that much money and then how it destroys your families. 
Exactly. What next? History can rhyme again. Nikki, this was wonderful. I learned a lot and I highly recommend your podcast. It's a joy to listen to and you have so many stories and you bring those people back to life and introduce all of us to a time that might have been forgotten, but I think there are big parallels to things that happened since and I think we can learn from other people's mistakes. They're always cheaper to learn from than our own mistakes. Yeah. You're going to make you're going to make some of them, but you can also like gauge it a little better. Because if you right. try to live a life with zero mistakes, that itself is a mistake. Nikki, I think it's a wonderful message for everybody. Thank you again for this time. I really enjoyed it. It was great talking with you, and I look forward to hearing more in your podcast as well. Thank you. You were listening to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question, what it means to live a rich life beyond money. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and follow, subscribe, rate, and share with friends and family. We rely on word of mouth to promote the show. One click for you means the world to us. Thank you. Until next time, your host, Bogomil Baranowski. The content of this podcast is for general informational purposes only, and so are the opinions of members of Seacard Associates, a registered investment advisor, and guests of the show. This podcast does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any specific security or financial instruments or provide investment advice or service. Past performance is not indicative of future results. More information on Seacard Associates is available in its Form ADV disclosure documents available at advisorinfo.sec.gov. 